Uh, it's great to be here this morning. I don't know why uh, I don't think of that uh, the moment before uh, the offertory every week, but I said to Ensel, uh, I feel like God could do something amazing this morning. So um, hopefully uh, that's coming from the Holy Spirit. Hopefully uh, we're able to come in and, and uh, have a sense of expectancy this morning that when the people of God gather together and God is there in our midst, um, that amazing things could happen. Uh, but I want to start with just a little story. When we were in Bend, so I moved from Bend with my family a couple years ago. And in Bend, when I left the house every day, I would drive by an elementary school. And when I'd come home, drive by the same elementary school, coming and going every day. And this elementary school had uh, large uh, areas of grass, a lot of fields. And so a lot of the different sports teams in Bend would do their practices on these fields. Uh, and the interesting thing was during the soccer season, as I would leave uh, and come back, especially coming back or on Saturday mornings leaving, um, you'd see different ages of soccer teams out there uh, playing and practicing. And the soccer teams that had little kids that were just beginning uh, were some of the funniest things that I'd ever see because you'd basically have one big group of kids that would just follow the ball everywhere. Uh, so you'd, you'd run with a stampede here and then you'd run there and then the stampede would, would go back. So you had two positions on the field, one goalie here, uh, one goalie here, and then no other positions. It was just <laughs> the stampede. Uh, but the older kids, as, as kids uh, got older and learned to play soccer, it's interesting. The ball would go across the field, but people would stay in their position because they realized that in pay, uh, playing that position, they actually help the team better. And they're trusting that other people likewise are playing a different position and that together they can accomplish more in this kind of an organized way. Um, most things work that way. As we get better and better at what we're doing, we organize and accomplish more. And the text that we're looking at this morning has that simple facet to it, but it's infinitely more complex and it's got a, a multicultural dimension to it as well that's often missed. So if you would, turn with me to the book of Acts and we're in Acts chapter six this morning. And we're gonna see how the early church multiplied leadership to cover the growing needs of its diverse congregation. We're gonna see how the early church multiplied leadership to cover the needs of its diverse congregation. And in Acts 6, beginning in verse 1 and reading through verse 7, uh, we see this. That in those days when the number of his, uh, his Jesus' disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because there, that's the Hellenistic uh, Jews, their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food, the almsgiving. And so the 12 gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. So brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and of wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and we'll give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. And this proposal pleased the whole group. And so they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, who was a proselyte or convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and then laid their hands on them. 
And so the word of God was spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. That's a wonderful look at the early church as we're going through the book of Acts and how it's beginning to develop. But I want to sum up the truth uh, at the heart of this passage with the following statement. So here's kind of my summation statement or truth statement. And it's this, that the apostles empowered trusted community leaders to meet the growing needs of the church without compromising the priorities that were entrusted to them. Again, the apostles empowered trusted community leaders to meet the growing needs of the church without compromising the priorities that were entrusted to them. But the first part of this that I want to speak to is this idea of deference and empowerment, that there's a cultural aspect to what the, uh, the disciples are, are looking at and dealing with. So if we go back to Acts 6, verses 1 through 4, with some highlights in it this time, this is what we read. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. Brothers and sisters, said the disciples, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and we'll give our attention to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Uh, the first thing we have to understand is that this context is set in Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem is a cosmopolitan city. It's a, a big city. Uh, Herod the Great had done all this uh, building there to make it one of kind of um, the, the jewels of, of, the, uh, of the whole of the Mediterranean world. And so you had people from North Africa that would have been in Jerusalem, from Asia, from the rest of the Mediterranean. And we can get a, a little bit of a flavor of how diverse this culture is by going back to Acts chapter 2 and looking at the na nationalities or the ethnicities that are represented when uh, the apostles have the Holy Spirit come to them like tongues of fire and they then speak to people in their own native language. And so I have them highlighted, but here's how it reads. How does each of us hear them speaking in our own native language? We are Parthi uh, Parthians, Medes, and Alamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus in Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, and we hear them declaring the wonders of God all in our own tongues. So you've got this incredibly diverse group of people that are centered in Jerusalem and make up this original um, prototype first New Testament church, if you will. And so Jerusalem is a lot like New York City, if you think of New York City representing all of this diversity. Um, by the way, I don't know if you know this, um, but, but uh, Houston, Texas is now the most diverse city in America. Isn't that kind of crazy? Uh, so Houston, Texas, think of Houston in <laughs> uh, all of this diversity. But we've got all of this going on, and what's happening is that the non-Aramaic or non-Hebrew-speaking Jews... Um, the ones that are coming from outside of Jerusalem, uh, the Hellenistic Jews, are being overlooked in the giving of food or the alms. 
Um, so these are people that are of the diaspora. So when the Israelites uh, during the exile were spread out to different countries, uh, they end up in the area of the world that Alexander the Great conquered. And it's, it's the Greek language and Greek culture that they've grown up in, that they know, that they're familiar with. And so these Greek Jews or Christians, if you will, are here in Jerusalem and their needy or vulnerable people are being overlooked. Um, that's the context. And they're being overlooked by the people that are native to Jerusalem, that, that understand the culture, that understand the language and the ways of operating there in Jerusalem. The word diaspora, by the way, is a simple word for scattered or dispersed. So when we talk about uh, the diaspora, it's, it's a simple scattering. In fact, there are a lot of different diasporas. Pastor Paul Choi did his doctoral thesis on uh, the diaspora of Korean Christians uh, around the world. So we are talking about in the New Testament context, the diaspora of Jews in the Hellenistic world. And it's easy to understand the problem here. The problem is, is that the people that are handing out the food or giving out the alms probably have friends or family uh, they probably know certain ways of interacting or operating cultural norms that is similar to the needy people that speak Hebrew or Aramaic. And so in that, there are people at the margins or in the margins that are left out. It's easy to see how that could happen. And so when this complaint comes to the disciples, the disciples um, pause. Um, it was asked to them, who will take care of our, our vulnerable and our needy. And they paused and what they did was to create the seven, what's gonna become deacons or deaconesses. They raise up these seven. Now, the interesting thing about this is they get at the, the heart of the multicultural dimension of the problem. And this is something I never learned growing up. Uh, I always learned the surface part that there were seven that were, uh, that were named or empowered. There were, were the deacons or deaconesses that were created. But I never really understood just how deeply uh, the disciples were, were interacting with the multi-ethnic component of this. To show you that, I want to put Acts, 5, uh, um, Acts chapter 6, verse 5 on the screen. And we'll just hold it here for a minute. But if you don't use Bible Gateway, it's an easy way to um, do all things Bible. So on your phone or on your computer, just BibleGateway.com. Uh, that's kind of what I use for a lot of my searches and, and things that I'm kind of exploring. And one of the things you can do that's, that's easy and fun is if you click on the little Bible translation arrow, it's usually defaulted to the NIV. If you click on that and just go up a couple Bible translations um, to something called Mounts uh, with an M, M-O-U-N-C-E, Mounts. It's a Greek in a linear, meaning you have the literal text of the New Testament, and then you have what the Greek words are underneath. And, and oftentimes you don't have to speak any Greek to, to, to see or to find some really interesting Things In this passage, uh, it's really helpful because if we highlight the names of the seven, uh, we see something really interesting. There was a problem with the Greek-speaking widows um, being overlooked, and the people that are chosen by the Greek-speaking community and known to the Greek-speaking community, because it's from among them, the seven that are chosen out of the Greek-speaking community are Greek individuals. So you see Stephen here, 
and his name is Stephanos. It's a Greek name. If you were to name your son, uh, your son Stephen, um, it's deriving from a Greek etymology. Philip, the name Philip comes from Philip of Macedon. It's uh, Alexander the Great's father, if you remember way back from, from history classes, baby. Uh, so this is another Greek name. And you go on with the Greek names, and then even Nicholas of Antioch, who was a convert to Judaism. So you have a Greek person from a Greek town that converts to Judaism that's now a Greek believer in the early church in Jerusalem. So these are seven people that uh, are of the exile and the return. They're diaspora individuals themselves. They understand the unique needs of the diaspora people, of the Hellenistic Jews. Another way of saying what's going on here would be this, that the apostles recognized the multicultural reality of the church of Jesus, and then they empowered multi-ethnic leaders to uniquely and fully meet the needs of all the people. I'll read it again. The apostles recognized the multicultural reality of the church of Jesus in Jerusalem and empowered multi-ethnic leaders to uniquely and fully meet the needs of all the people. Um, it was a Greek-speaking problem, so they raised up Greek-speaking individuals that knew that culture. But it's deeper than that. It's also a Hebraic or Aramaic-speaking um, believing problem because there was a blind spot in the church, wasn't there? Um, the church and the way it was aligned had this blind spot so that it excluded certain individuals. So there's a problem for all sides of the church here. And in some ways, the church wasn't ready for the radical unifying um, presence of the Holy Spirit that would take the different parts and make them one. Before Jesus dies and the Holy Spirit comes, there are divisions in the faith. In fact, the temple, if you looked at the temple, it has certain courts for Gentiles, certain courts for Jews, certain places for men, certain places for women. And so division was a natural aspect in some sense of the religion that, that they inherited. So they move into the New Testament period and they're having to learn how radically unifying it truly is. Paul will write in the book of Galatians that there's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, that we are all one in Christ. And so the early church is wrestling with what does it actually look like to be, to be radically unified? Um, we talk in America, uh, let me just, in America we have this problem still, I guess is what I want to say. Uh, this was a problem in the early church. In many respects, it's a problem still today. Martin Luther King Jr. wrote about the, the, the United States and said that 11 o'clock on Sunday morning is the most segregated hour of American life. Um, because we all tend to find our own churches and gather with people that are very similar to us. And so on Sunday morning, you can find much of America in, in groups or pockets of, of culture that look, uh, act, talk, think just like themselves. And so this is very much a real issue for us today. And I think we do an injustice when we just talk about it in terms of race or color. It's an ethnic and nationality issue. It's a cultural issue as well. And it extends beyond that to gender, to age, uh, to socioeconomic status, to legal status, um, to extroverts and introverts. We have 
of these lines that can form up in the church where there are a group of people that are enjoying the benefits of the community, but a group of people that feel excluded or on the margins. We have to continually wrestle with this and what it means to be a New Testament church. Um, as long as there's somebody in our community that's saying, hello, I'm being overlooked. And if it's an introvert, they're not going to be saying it. They're going to be thinking it. <laughs> um, but as long as there's some part of our community that exists on the margins and is being overlooked with the full benefits of the church community, then we have not yet arrived at the kingdom picture of, of what God wants. Um, there's a saying that's famous. It's a Chinese proverb that if you give a man a fish, you feed him for a day. Uh, that if you teach a man to fish, you feed him for a lifetime. Uh, that's, that's something I grew up hearing, but the interesting thing is there's a third part to it that Dr. John Perkins, the founder of the Christian Community Development Association, we have someone in here that uh, sat on the board of that for many years, uh, but John Perkins says if, if you give a man a fish, you feed him for a day. If you teach a man to fish or someone to fish, you feed him for a lifetime. But you have to go the extra mile and ask this question, who owns the pond? And how are we giving access to that pond? Uh, and that's kind of what I think is being talked about here, that we're looking at equity and shared ownership in the early church. My job as lead pastor is not to become the multicultural expert at Village. Uh, I'd forever be trying to prove something and probably become proud in the process and wouldn't be very helpful. My job isn't to be the multicultural expert at Village, and it's not my job to try and meet all of the needs of the different ethnic groups at Village. It's my job and, and the job of leadership to show deference and honor and to help empower leaders from within the various communities at Village and to make sure that we continue to move forward toward equity and shared ownership. Um, as an aside to this, uh, one of the things that we're asking those that preach at Village to do more of is to manuscript out their sermons. Um, it's not the normal way that, that speakers would speak uh, or that uh, preachers would preach. But in this community, we have different languages that exist and we together come uh, as one body. So more and more, we're asking the people that speak to manuscript out. I'm manuscripting out now more and more of the sermons, which uh, allows for a more fluid translation. Um, and so I'm going to be speaking a little less and trying to empower uh, other voices so that we truly get a perspective uh, of the New Testament, of the text, of Scripture that really helps us see things, I think, clearly. It also allows us to, to go to different fellowships or Sunday school classes uh, or communities, whether it be kids ministry, youth ministries on Sunday mornings, and to try and interact with the various facets of village. Um, but trying to empower people that can give us a perspective of Scripture from their own unique vantage point. If we go back to our central statement here or our truth, we'll get a second part of this. Um, hold on one second before we move on. Um, I don't know if I've, if I've fully communicated how, how shocking it is that, that I could go through 20 plus years of ministry and it wasn't until I heard a Latino leader from New York in his 70s 
take me to the book of Acts and show me that, that the seven deacons were Greek individuals, that I finally realized that there was a whole dimension to this that was never being taught to me. I mean, it's, it's, it's got to be shocking to us that we sometimes gloss along on the, on the surface of things and we miss what's really going at the heart of the New Testament community. And if we don't lean in far enough and really grab what's going on and wrestle with that, then we're missing something significant about the New Testament church. Uh, when I go and speak at churches or at conferences, uh, I've begun to say, and, it, and it's new uh, in the last four or five years, that, that a diverse church or a multi-ethnic church isn't just a good thing that some churches do. Um, it's a style of church. Uh, but this idea of a multi-ethnic church is the heart of New Testament Christianity. The picture of the New Testament church is necessarily multi-ethnic. It's, it's only when something has gone really wrong that we would find ourselves in spaces or places that are not diverse. Does that make sense? So I want us to just really wrestle with that. This text today, Acts chapter 6, is perfect for village. Village is... is is in an amazing space where we're interacting with first generation, second generation, third generation, and people from a lot of different places, languages, cultures, and trying to figure out what it looks like to really be the church. Um, and let me just add a, another dimension to that. Um, there's an African proverb that says, uh, if you wanna go fast, go alone. Uh, if you wanna go far, go together. And churches that are not diverse tend to um, be really easy and go really fast because it's one style that they're looking at and they're not having to ask in some ways difficult questions or have a lot of conversations. Um, we get to go slow. We get the benefit of those conversations. We get to receive from one another what each of us has to share or to give in terms of our cultural insight. And we all grow and, and in some sense become bigger or, or more developed or get to experience the fullness of, of this thing called the church through that process. And so I don't know of another text that so closely hits home to who Village is as a church. But the second truth here, or the second part of our truth is just this idea of priorities and multiplication. Priorities and multiplication. So let's look again at Acts chapter six, verses three through four. It says, brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who you know are, full to be, uh, are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. And we will turn this responsibility over to them and we'll give them, uh, then give our attention to prayer and to the ministry of the word. What we see here is simply this, that as needs in a church grow, capacity has to grow as well. This is the idea of multiplication. Remember, um, as Moses was in the desert and his, his father-in-law came to him and waited a little bit, as father-in-laws should do before giving advice uh, to, uh, to the husbands of their daughters. But the father-in-law comes to him and says, Moses, you need to organize and you need to create structure, a pyramid that allows for leaders to help you uh, lead the people of Israel. You can't do it all yourself. 
We also see Jesus with the 12 disciples. These weren't just students, but these were ministry partners uh, that would help him uh, with crowd management, that helped give food out to people, if you remember, and went ahead before him to cities to prepare, in some sense, that city for Jesus' arrival. So the 12, uh, the 12 disciples were, were also leaders that Jesus was empowering to help him carry out his ministry. So this idea is, as needs grow, capacity has to grow as well. But if the disciples in the early church had left um, their ministry to go do other ministries, there's also another aspect that would happen, that they would neglect certain priorities to try and meet the needs of new or different priorities. And so we see this idea of priorities coming in, um, that, that we as pastors, as, as leaders, as elders in the church, as staff in the church, need to be equipping and empowering so that the whole thing grows, not just so that we're running from one ministry to the next. Paul says this in the book of Ephesians. He says, so Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up and from him the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. A theologian friend of mine put it this way. By the way, that theologian friend goes to village. Um, but he put it this way. He said, pastors and elders aren't called to meet all the needs of the church. They are called to prioritize certain values and equip others to do the work of ministry. And I think what he was saying or in the conversation, what he was trying to say is that the church shouldn't be looking for superhero pastors who do everything. The church should be looking for faithful pastors who do the role or the job that God wants them to do so that others are being equipped and empowered so that all of us can benefit. Uh, the bottom line is that the church is supposed to meet the church's needs. That God knew before you were born the role that he had for you to have a ministry in the church and a mission in the world and what that was to look like. God purposed ahead for you to have that. Um, all of us are important to the work of the body. Uh, there's an interesting story that I'd want to bring up. I don't know if you caught it when Insul was doing the announcements, um, but in kids ministry, uh, in the kids ministry area, they don't talk about volunteers anymore. They talk about ministry partners. And so they have found and raised up ministry partners that they see as doing the ministry with them. And, and these partners are learning the Bible stories every week and finding their own ways to tell those stories, not just having one uh, storyteller, that, that we're really working to kind of own this as a team, uh, that, that, that we're pushing it out to the edges, that we're all carrying the work of ministry. Uh, if you weren't in the first service or, or didn't walk by uh, towards the end of the first service, it was fun to see the Village Worship Institute or students up leading worship at the nine o'clock hour and seeing how Dago is empowering and raising kids up and working with that ministry. Uh, they've got a, a song that I think they sang a number of weeks ago for the offertory in this service that's going to be released as an MP3, I think, this week. Uh, that we get to send out to the church community and, and, and be blessed by that. But this idea of, of the church being the church as each part does its work. Um, it's a trap uh, for staff 
and elders to try to meet everyone's needs. It's a trap. Um, if we do that, everyone in the church community loses twice. Um, so listen to the, the arithmetic on this one. The first way we lose is if we're trying to do all the work, others aren't being empowered. Um, if we're trying to do all the work, then, then we're failing the church body and we're not equipping. The second is if we're trying to do all the work, that priorities are being neglected or diminished. We try to do too much, so the quality goes down. Uh, we call this diminishing returns, and the church suffers that way as well. So our church health, uh, the vitality of village, depends on and begins with leaders knowing and holding boundaries. But there's a corollary to that. Um, also releasing ministry and empowering, allowing others to take and run with it. I think pastors struggle on both sides of this. I think pastors struggle on both sides of this. The first side of it is saying no. Pastors are notoriously bad at saying no. Um, kids can say no really easy, little kids, um, and, and have a hard time saying yes. Adults have a hard time saying no, and we always say yes. You need something, yes. Um, you're upset about something that I could maybe help with, yes. Could we add this, yes. Isn't this a good idea? Yes, that's a great idea. And we add and add, and boundaries or, or holding things become really hard. We have a hard time saying no. But when we do hold boundaries, we have another thing um, that we're challenged with, which is letting go of control and giving ownership to people in the church to take and run and dream and pray and network and release themselves into ministry um, in the way that God sees fit. And so we have this dual aspect going on, um, a dual aspect. And so it is a priority for, for me. I think it's a priority for the leadership at Village this year to make sure that we're planning for the equipping and the empowerment of leaders. We've got a lot going on beneath the surface in terms of vision, uh, what the identity of village is, what that strategy is gonna look like going forward. And we're gonna begin to roll that out little by little throughout this year um, to the congregation, but it's gonna be a fun season of really knowing and seeing and feeling the energy of where God's taken us. And as we do that, it remains, uh, it remains our responsibility to equip the body for works of service. Um, when I came back in January, I had a mentor that pulled me aside and, um, and, and talked to me. And um, he'd been talking with me throughout the month of December as well, but he talked to me at this point and said, Ken, uh, what you need to understand is it's God's church, not yours. And you're not the savior of your church, Jesus is. Let me say that again. It's God's church, not yours. And you are not the savior of your church, Jesus is. Um, we all have a role to play at this church, not any more important than the other. And I've been trying to take this to heart along with another piece of advice from a friend of mine that we can put on the screen. Um, but Pete Kelly was a colleague of mine in Bend, and he regularly would say this in sermons. He says, God is perfectly capable of handling the consequences of our obedience. God is perfectly capable of handling the consequences of your obedience. Put your name in there. God is perfectly cap capable of handling the consequences of my obedience. I have a hard time disappointing people, and I have to, I have to wrestle with that. 
But if I maintain the priorities that, that I have to hold at this church, if I keep my main things uh, the main things, the things that God wants me to be responsible for, then I have to be willing to trust God with the other side of that, that people will understand uh, that, that someone might be displeased with me, but they're not going to hate me. Um, that somehow over time, this will actually help us learn to become a better team where we play different roles or parts. But in your life, as a parent, as a business owner, as a teacher, uh, as, a, as a student, um, as someone who's on a team, as someone who's trying to walk by faith and trust God with difficult things or disappointing people, look at that statement. God is perfectly capable of handling the consequences of your obedience. Whatever the reasons are that, that force us to, to keep from letting go and trusting, we're really saying that we're not trusting God to handle the consequences of what it would look like to be obedient. Um, isn't that an uncomfortable uh, quote right there? Um, it's, it's, every time I look at it, it challenges me. It's just an uncomfortable uncomfortable truth. By the way, I have a lot of pastor friends that are really good at um, framing uncomfortable quotes um, that challenge you. Uh, just see me. I'll give you a whole litany of them. Um, just to, to say again, it's a priority for me. Uh, it's not just for me to keep the main things the main things, but part of my main thing is to make sure that Village is an equipping church. Um, my main thing that I, I, I have to remain obedient to, one of them, is to make sure that Village is an equipping church. And we seek to grow with that and to continue to work and develop on that as we go through this year and into the future. But just a quick story about um, Pastor Kwong. If you know Pastor Kwong, um, Pastor Kwong is one of my favorite people. Uh, he encourages everyone he meets. Uh, he's, uh, he carries the light of Jesus with him through time. Uh, someone asked him why he's always so happy. And, and I think they told me that his answer was, I get to serve Jesus with all of my time every day. How could I not be happy? Um, but Pastor Kwong, we could put it on the board, has become an expert in this, uh, the, the Gallup Finder test. Uh, so the StrengthsFinder test, it's, it's not a Christian test. It's from the Gallup organization. They've poured millions and millions and millions of dollars into developing this. But what it's basically aiming to do when you take this test is, is name your top five strengths out of a list of 34 that they've created, okay? Uh, and their, their whole thinking behind this is that everybody has certain strengths. They're not, um, they're not your talents. It's, it's really the way your brain is wired, the way your body is wired in, in some ways since before you were born. Uh, so I begin to look at this and, and, and in my own way go, this Strengths Finder test is really good at naming what God wanted you to be good at. Um, it's a great test for, for married couples to take and talk about. Uh, just to give you a little insight on why, your greatest strength is your most dominant thing, which means it's the thing your spouse is going to appreciate most and hate the most. <laughs> Um, so talking about it in terms of strengths, not in terms of a weakness, makes it really healthy. Um, but, but taking this test becomes really helpful, I think, in, in, in identifying who it is that God's made you to be. Uh, if you're in a life group, we sent the link, I think, with the questions for life groups this week. 
And something that might be fun is for your life group or your family to take this test. Uh, Tamara and one of my daughters just took it this week. Uh, Tamara's top five strengths are adaptability, connectedness, positivity, ideation, and maximizer. Um, I'm a good husband. I memorized them. Um, but, uh, but here's the thing. Kwong has you take this test, and he, and he keeps everybody's strengths. Like he, uh, someday he's going to blackmail people or something. He's got everybody's strength uh, in his phone and, and in his records. And he's always trying to figure out how to encourage you to maximize your strengths. And when he meets with somebody to talk about their strengths, his favorite word is amazing. He is amazing. She is amazing. It is amazing. This is amazing. And, and he's always talking about how amazing it is what God is doing in people's lives to produce the strengths that allow them to serve in ways that bring about fruit through the power of the Holy Spirit. And I think that's kind of a, a picture for me. If you, if you can see Kwong, by the way, I think his number one strength is positivity. Um, but it's amazing. You are amazing. You are amazing. You are amazing. You are amazing. All of you are amazing. And you have strengths that God has given you to use uh, for works of service that the whole body of Christ may be built up as we all do our part on a good team. Does that make sense? Can I get an amen? Yeah. Amen. Um, I met a visitor last week who used to live in the area and came to village 25 years ago. And the visitor um, shared with me how 25 years ago, we were just talking about becoming a multicultural church. Um, and this visitor was remarking, it's amazing to me how over the last 25 years, things have changed and what exists today. And at staff meeting this week in our devotional, we were talking about this passage we were talking about uh, the diversity at Village. Um, some of the, the staff members that have experienced and, and been a part of staff for 15, 10, five years shared stories of, of, of where, how things have developed and their experience in that development and how they feel about that and, and how glad and grateful they are with, with where we are today and then how hopeful they are that we continue to move forward in that kind of a way. And in that sharing, um, there was uh, a time or a point where uh, tears were being shed, where multiple staff members um, were shedding tears. And, and as I walked away from that meeting, those tears made me realize just how, uh, how real, how human, how personal this conversation is. That, that we are talking not about an abstract con, uh, concept when we talk about church. We're not even talking about it in uh, Jerusalem in the New Testament. That when we're talking about this, we're talking about um, ourselves. We're talking about each other. We're talking about our need to be known, our need to be loved, our need to be empowered that all of us wants to feel like we're a meaningful part of the body. All of us wants to feel like we can contribute. Everyone here is, is, is desirous of not being left out. So we're talking about us in this. And so 
Um, with that, I just want to read this quote maybe that sums it up. This was, uh, Yenna found a, a book that she had, had come across years ago um, as, as staff was talking about this sermon. Um, and she found this book on a blog with, with a lot of things with regard to this. Um, but this is what the writer talking about the New Testament church says. He writes that genuine mutuality is to be the rule, not the exception. Genuine mutuality is what he talks about this, how he, how he phrases this unity that we're supposed to be striving for. It's supposed to be the rule, not the exception. To recover this is the most serious task we face, and it will mean rethinking the very nature of church. I'm in leadership, so when people start talking about rethinking church, there's a part of my brain that becomes afraid right away. Um, you're going to push on me, or you might bring a complaint. Uh, you might require something of me. You might point out a blind spot. There's a human part of me that, that's naturally afraid. Um, that's not supposed to be the pastoral part. The pastoral part is supposed to receive the complaint, to be willing to have the blind spots exposed, to, to realize with the voice and perspective that comes, it creates opportunity for us to more and more look like the New Testament kingdom. We're supposed to be diverse, brothers and sisters, not just in how we look, but in how we share power and who is speaking and in the conversation that we're having together across all the different demographics of our church, young and old, ethnic, and every, everything in between. So here it is, that our little actions of meeting needs, our ways of multiplying leaders in the church, our ways of serving, our ways of suffering, are the very ways that the Holy Spirit uses to confirm the message in us and to scatter that message like seed to the places that God wants his love to be made known. And we do this thing. We do this church. We do it intentionally, and we do it cross-culturally. Amen? If you would, uh, I'm going to pray for us, but I would just ask if you would stand with me this time and, and let me um, say a prayer for us as the worship team comes back out. But Father God, with open hands, we ask that, that we'd be able to receive what you would want to give us this morning. With open hands, we want to receive what you'd say to us about our ministry in the church. With open hands, we want to receive what you'd say to us about our mission in the world. With open hands, we want to receive what you would say to us about our brother, about our sister, about our neighbor, about ourselves. With open hands, Father, we release our desire to control, our desire to somehow shape church to suit our particular needs. With open hands, we release church to you knowing that you can make it so much bigger, so much more beautiful than what even we ask or imagine. And so we, Paul, uh, we pray along with Paul that you would do immeasurably more than, than we ask or imagine. That you do that in the name of Jesus Christ, the head of this church, and through the power of the Holy Spirit, to your glory and yours alone, we pray. Amen.